0: This is Mommy, mom While Feminist. We're here to have authentic, open-minded, hopeful, and maybe even helpful conversation about being a mom in a world where gender inequality and misogyny are
1: everywhere. We want our parenting decisions to reflect our values as feminists, but that's not easy, so we need to talk about it. Welcome. Welcome. I'm Lisa. And I'm Lindsay. I have two sons, ages five and seven, and a daughter, age two. And I have two daughters, ages three and six.
0: Before we get started, we want to lift up the name of Jonathan Price, a black man killed by a police officer in Wolf City, Texas, in early October. Uh, The police officer who shot and killed him, whose name is Sean Lucas, was arrested and charged. This was several weeks ago by the time this episode will come out, but um, we do want to say his name, Jonathan Price, and lift up his family and community. We also want to call your attention to some trends in in local budgeting related to the calls to uh, defund the police. In Washington, D.C., this past week, um, on October 21st, the mayor of Washington, D.C., called to add $43 million to the D.C. police budget, taking money away from the Department of Health Care Finance and away from the Workforce Investment Fund. And these dollars will increase, add more money to the bu- police budget uh, to pay for the cost of overtime um, of police officers during the uprisings this summer, which we're calling to defund the police. And now the mayor is calling to add more money into the police's budget, and they already got an increase since those uprisings so we just want to make sure this is still at the top of people's lists when we talk about civic action which is the um, part of the episode we're talking about today is that um, police budgets are still increasing even in democratic cities like Washington DC and we'll post some links of how you can help and support and take action in our show notes
1: as the election gets closer, we really want to encourage people to look to their local Black Lives Matter chapter to see which candidates they're endorsing because so many of the issues that are oppressing Black people in our areas are decided by local governments. And often, Black Lives Matter chapters are endorsing specific candidates and helping the people who are voting get. More information. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Thanks, Lisa. Now we're going to move into our topic for today. So, we are days away from the election, and that's the topic of today. We are building on what we talked about last week when we interviewed Francoise. And we talked last week a lot about different ways that we can get involved as moms, as parents, as adults. But this week, we want to talk about how we can involve our children in this process. And so, we're really excited to have Gabby Hewitt here with us today to share her expertise and experience. So
2: welcome, Gabby. Welcome. Thank you, Lisa and Lindsay. Thanks for having me. Yeah.
1: Gabby Hewitt is a mom of two boys, age five and three, and an associate partner at Education Elements, which is a national consulting firm. She leads work with small and large school districts across the country to impact student success, create more equitable student experiences, and build responsive organizations. She's also a content creator and certified facilitator for the New School Rules and the New Team Habits, a framework and step-by-step guide to build and implement more responsive teams and districts. Gabby has been a classroom teacher, teacher leader, and district manager for resident teachers new to the profession. She is passionate about teaching hard history, promoting social justice issues, and creating transformational change in education. She has a BS in political science and mass communication from Louisiana State University, And an MS in Educational Studies from John Hopkins University. Born and raised in New Orleans, Gabby currently lives in the Pittsburgh area with her husband and sons. In her free time, you can find her pursuing her passion for photography, running or exploring new coffee shops.
0: Before we get into our feminist crush, we want to ask you, do
2: you identify as a feminist and why or why not? I love this question, because at its basic form, I feel like feminism is just wanting all genders to have equal rights and opportunities. And so I think in, in wanting to sort of level the playing field across the board, I, I definitely consider myself a feminist. And I've also sort of expanded my view on, especially as a mom of boys, on not just thinking, oh, if I had a daughter, I'd raise her to be a feminist, but act- actively thinking about, "Well, no, I want my sons to be feminists as well.
1: Awesome. Thank yeah. you. We start always start by sharing a feminist crush. This can be anything you love for its pro-feminist vibe. I'll go first just to get us started, and then, Gabby, you can go. So um, my feminist crush for this podcast is the movie Cuties. It stirred up a lot of controversy in the U.S. The first discussion started when Netflix chose a more provocative poster for the U.S. audience than the – had been used in france which is where the movie was made and since then there's been a lot of people upset about the way that the movie portrays young women exploring sexuality so of course i was really curious to watch it i will say that the movie is pretty painful to watch because your heart really goes out for the girls in the movie but i think that people are confusing discomfort over the way society treats women and treats its girls with anger at the movie itself and i did not see anything that was like actually harmful for the actresses. And in fact, I know from reading that there was like counselors on set and they were very, very careful about how they filmed it. But I thought I'd share a comment from the director, the writer and the director. Her name is Maimona Ducure. And she says, this film is my own story. All my life, I've juggled two cultures, Senegalese and French. As a result, people often ask me about the oppression of women in more traditional societies. And I always ask, but isn't the objectification of women's bodies in Western Europe and the United States another kind of oppression? When girls feel so judged at such a young age, how much freedom will they ever truly have in life? So I just think it's a really important film for feminist moms to watch, especially moms of girls, I think.
2: I love that, Lisa.
1: Yeah, I
0: haven't seen it. I've seen a lot of the controversy, but I haven't seen that. That's good to know that because I, I, the one thing that I did wonder was like, the the girls that were like putting them the actresses the actresses yeah Mm -hmm. but it sounds like that like you you were talking about how there were counselors on set and things like that yeah
1: I think they tried to be really responsible I I don't think that the writer and director went into this film you know ignorant of the fact that it was going to be tackling an uncomfortable topic with yeah thank you for sharing that
0: I hadn't Mm -hmm. heard that quote either that's that's definitely something to, to reflect on for sure yeah thank you
2: so gabby what's your feminist crush? oh gosh it's hard to follow that one
0: <laughs> yeah it can be anything
2: Okay. Great. Because mine has to be with football. <laughs> so, Amazing. Oh my God. I'm so excited. Oh gosh. No, I, I mean, anybody who knows me knows I'm a huge football fan. Um, you know, I grew up in New Orleans. You guys said that, and we don't have a lot of professional sports teams in New Orleans. So you're, you're a football fan. Like you have your saints and you can cheer for the LSU Tigers and that's sort of your life, you know, during football season. But, uh, I thought this was really interesting. So last week this made huge news and I I actually don't know that it was picked up outside of the sports fan world, but um, there were three women. Um, Their names are Callie Brownson, Jennifer King, Sarah Thompson. Uh, The first two ladies are each um, coaches for the Cleveland Browns and the Washington football team. And um, Sarah Thomas is a referee. And it was the first time that there were women on both sidelines and a woman officiating a football game. And I just love that because I I think that when I say I'm a big football fan, I get a couple of reactions like, oh, that's cool, or oh, how did that happen? And it's hard to think that I would get that question if I was a man, right? Because I think a lot of people don't associate women in football as much. So I just love that those gender, I guess, stereotypes are being broken. But the other thing that I really love is women actually make up more than fifty percent of the NFL fan base, right? And so again, mm-hmm. that's not a, that's not a thing you think about. You think, oh, women who are football fans, they watch it with their husbands or their you know male family members or whatever it is. And no, like there's a big market out there for the NFL to sort of uh, appeal to both genders. And and I think it was just such big news and and so interesting to see not just like one female coach, which we saw last year, but Just all football teams, the officiating crew had some representation.
1: That's awesome. All three three of
2: those women are my female crush this week. Amazing.
1: I love that. And, you know, I will say that through your Instagram, I feel like I've seen you be a huge fan. But then also you really have like moral expectations for your role, like for the people you look up to. And I feel like you like hold the LSU football team accountable. You're you're like, great job. Or you're like, do better when it comes to social issues,
2: which is a
1: cool way to be a fan. I really admire that.
2: Oh, thanks, Lisa.
0: That's awesome.
1: (laughs) So what's your feminist crush this week, Lindsay?
0: Okay, so my feminist crush is a group of moms led by a friend of mine, Chioma Oru. They are part of the Parent Advocacy Action Team. And they are really trying to raise the awareness about advocacy around children with disabilities and how they're being left out of the discussion right now in D.C., around schools, uh, school reopening, virtual learning, distance learning. I just really admire the way they're organizing, the way they're organizing other parents, the way they're, they are approaching this from a very nuanced, child-centered, family-centered approach. They have this petition out right now for the mayor to really take seriously and include families in this discussion, families of children with disabilities, because they're really being left out right now. And it's kind of bigger than this whole debate of like, do you open schools or not? It's like, it's, those aren't even really the right questions. There's some other questions we need to be answering right now. So I'm going to lift them up. I really admire these women. So they're my feminist crush for this week.
1: That's wonderful. Thanks. And Lindsay, you can give us a link to direct people to more information about what they do? Yeah,
0: I can. Yeah, I can include a link to the petition and, and more information about what they're what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Awesome. Thanks. We'll put that in our show notes. Wonderful. So Gabby, you taught history and civics for many years and after you moved into a different role in education, but have continued to be really engaged. And we just want to hear your story and get advice from you about how to talk to children about being involved citizens.
2: Yeah. You know, when I when I was asked to come on this show, I started thinking about where does this, could I pinpoint where I started to be like really engaged And for the most part, you know, I'm the daughter of two immigrants, and I saw my parents like practice their English by watching the news. And so part of me wonders, was it just exposure? I don't actually know. But the other pieces, if I look at some of the, you know, most powerful moments that have stuck with me in my formal education, a lot of those come up in history or nonfiction type settings, right? And what I mean by that is, you know, I vividly remember being in a middle school English class, reading a story where there was, you know, a Hispanic character, and I'm the one Hispanic student in the classroom. And I just felt like eyes were on me whether or not that existed. I don't, you know, I I couldn't tell you if that was true. But I, I like, it was it was sort of that moment that I realized that there are, there's just like discrepancies in sort of how people experience this country. And I think that's what we're seeing right now. And when I was encouraged to sort of ask some of those harder questions, it typically came up in like a nonfiction English setting or you know, a history class or an AP government class that I took in high school. And so, you know, part of my story is just really sort of shifting my role of a student as being really good at school, which I felt like I always was. I was always really good at taking tests and I was really good at completing assignments, checking it off, turning them in for a good grade. So sort of shifting from being a good student to being a good learner. And I feel like some of that, some of that shift, like when you're, when you're being a good learner, it's because you're asking questions And it's because you're taking issue with something that you're reading, and you're not just taking it at face value. Uh, And I've had adults in my life, you know, my parents, older siblings, teachers, I've had adults in my life who have encouraged that. And, and for whatever reason, it's been more on the history side, right? Like, it's, it's been the history teachers that I think have, maybe even themselves had permission to do that as a teacher, And so, you know, that was probably a roundabout way of saying I became really engaged in just American history at a very young age. For a lot of reasons, I personally benefited from being a a daughter of immigrants. I personally saw a difference in the way that I approached school when I felt like it was learning and not just check the box education to get a good grade. And that actually led me to, to seek a history position after college, right? I wasn't even an undergrad education major. I was a political science major, but again, I had a lot of teachers and professors that sort of encouraged me to explore different things. I I distinctly remember a professor who was almost argumentative, not in a disrespectful way, but he's like, I I want you guys to take issue with the philosophers that we're reading about, and these theories that we're going to be talking about. But yeah, so so after college, I became a a history teacher. And I remember, I remember walking into my very first classroom, I was teaching ninth graders in the summer who had previously uh, failed history, rather. So I was teaching a classroom classroom full of ninth graders who had failed history. And I had never been around people that didn't love it, right? I had been around people who didn't love math or science or or subjects that were consistently seen as harder, but I'd never been around people who just didn't like history. I just remember my students being like, we hate history. And that from then on, it became my mission to sort of go back and dissect, well, I really love history, but what was it about it that made me love it? And I think I was able to pinpoint, okay, it was the professors who said, you know, what do you think they asked some of the more open ended questions, or if we looked at this from a different viewpoint, could we see a bias come out? Could we see how context of that time period might have impacted what we're actually studying? And I I tried to bring that into my classroom. And that's something that to this day, I'm trying to teach to, you know, my own kids who are just really coming out of the toddler stage.
1: That. Is just a beautiful story. Thank you.
2: I, I'm really touched by
1: you're now the second person who has talked about the impact that their teachers had on them. Then also, I will admit that I considered myself bad at history, which is really funny because I'm a math educator. So for people who are listening, Gabby and I taught together many years ago now, but she was a history teacher of a group of eighth graders, and I was their math teacher. So we shared. 90 or so students. And um, I, of course, would be very sad when I heard that people said that they weren't good at math. And I knew that that couldn't be true. I knew that it was because they hadn't been taught. And so hearing you say this about history, knowing that I consider myself someone, you know, history was the only the only class that I I ever nearly failed. And I still remember it and it still like haunts me. So it's, it's amazing. And I'll say I've recently really taken to liking history because I've been reading alternate histories Oh, yeah! and suddenly yeah. exactly like you said, it's that like being able to challenge, being able to question. And now suddenly I'm like getting it and really enjoying teaching it to my kids. So. I
0: loved history. It was one of my favorite subjects. So why do you think that, for example, the students in your class, why do you think they hated history?
2: Uh, I mean, I, I think, Traditionally, right, if we think about how teachers have been evaluated, or even how they've been taxed with doing their job, you know, I even ran into this as a history teacher. So this is going to be my own bias coming out, because this is just my experience teaching in, um, you know, Philadelphia, Maryland, and then later DC, right. But um, over and over again, I felt like history was uh, treated almost like as a stepchild subject. Mm. And that provided sort of two different layers as a teacher, right? On the one hand, it was really liberating because I wasn't having to, quote unquote, teach to a test, right? So I had a lot of liberty. I, I don't remember having a lot of administrators come into my classroom for observations. So I had a lot of liberty in being able to design my lessons the way I wanted to, and also being able to design sort of the scope and sequence of the entire year because I wasn't trying to get through so many standards, right? Right. On the other hand, I think that also means that, you know, little things happen, right? Where it gets cut out of a year. Uh, so, you know, I was in a middle school where history was completely cut out of the sixth grade curriculum to make space for additional math or English time, right? And again, not knocking those subjects, but what that meant was I was compressing 300 years of history into a single year, whereas before I might have only had to teach about half of that, right? And so from from a student side, I think that means you probably get a different experience depending on how your teacher approaches that sort of context, right? Um, and so I just think it leads to a bunch of different experiences. You could have students who are identifying history as a class where they just have to memorize facts and that's it. And and we all know as educators, you don't really retain a lot of information that way. Or you could have some students who, you sort of like what you said, Lisa, some people think that they're just not good at math. Others think they're just not really good at at history, right? They don't enjoy research. They don't enjoy sort of like being told this is what happened in a, in a very nice package, right? Things don't just end. And I think a lot of times we say, I'll give a really vague example, but I think a lot of my students had come into history class saying, all right, America was founded and we had slavery and then slavery ended and now we don't have slavery anymore, right? And I think like some of that experience doesn't lead to really interesting, engaging dialogues. And it's, it's really up to individual teachers to create that and individual schools to make space for teachers to be able to do that.
1: Well, and us as parents to advocate for that.
2: Yeah. Yeah,
1: 100%. So and thinking about your work as a history
0: teacher and your experience and how does that impact the way you engage with elections, the way you teach about elections, the way everything related to elections and especially right now.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Obviously, in our lifetimes, this is the most polarizing election season we've ever had. And I would say almost in any lifetime, you know, in in actually in just US history. And so when I think about, you know, history classes or government classes or political science classes in college, where I just have so many positive experiences, it was because there was a very nuanced dialogue. And and all I mean by that is a professor saying there aren't two sides to this. There are many, many sides. And sometimes your role as a historian is to do a bunch of your own research, right? Look at a bunch of different sources and try and piece together or triangulate. These are the things that are likely true based on that, right? And I think that is what I am hoping for most You know, active voters to do this year, right? We, we have a lot of... We, we have a big debate about the national election, but there's a lot of local races that are going to make a huge difference, as we know. And I think one of our biggest problems right now is, is the, you know, identity voting that we experience, like just because you're a woman, you vote for this person, or just because you're a Democrat, you vote all blue, or just because you're a Republican, you vote all red. And I think those skills that I developed as a history student of really just trying to source my data from as many different places as possible, but also acknowledging that that those data sources have their own biases as well, is how I'm trying to approach the current election. And, and to me, it just, there is such a clear winner. There, there's such a clear choice for who we need to lead right now, because it, I truly believe that this is a fight for our democracy. We talked a little bit in the last episode
0: about whether we really, the United States is really truly a democracy or ever has been.
2: Yeah, if we, if we were to get into the real... You know, this is how we would define our country where everybody who teaches history would say, the textbook tells you we're a democratic republic, right? We're not truly just whatever the popular vote is, that's what happens. And I recently had a conversation with some friends of mine about this because, you know, we were talking about the electoral college. And (laughs) if it didn't exist in 2016, we'd obviously be in a very different space. But what was the purpose of the electoral college in the beginning? And this is why I love history so much, because you can really think about context. And so Mm -hmm. in the late 1700s, early 1800s, when we have our earliest examples of presidential elections, there was no mass information, right? There wasn't even a railroad system yet. So you have people getting information, mostly by word of mouth, potentially, the closer they get to larger cities, they might have more information about candidates who are running. And so for that reason framers decided that we need, we need some kind of safeguard, because we can't trust that people are informed enough to make the right choice in an election. So that safeguard is going to be the electoral college, right. And the tradition is electors will vote for the candidate who receives the most votes out of the popular vote. But electors also have the ability to just sort of go off script, and they can they can cast their electoral ballot for whoever they would like to, right. And so, you know, whether or not people agree with that system in the late 1700s, early 1800s, it made sense to have a system where there wasn't, there weren't, there weren't, there weren't avenues to be able to distribute a lot of information about what a particular candidate stood for. We're in a very different situation right now, right? You could turn on any channel, you could, uh, you know, you have so much information at your fingertips through Google, through Twitter, through any digital news sources, and I think that's sort of what the debate is right now. Like, are we truly a democracy? Because we do have the ability to have a really informed electorate right now. Uh, we used to trust that they are, but that would be a true democracy, right? I think it's just such an interesting conversation right now to even be thinking about mm-hmm. the way we run our elections and how we truly haven't updated it in almost 300 years.
1: Yeah. Well, and I mean, I was also thinking just that enslaved Black people and white women, well, I mean, all Black people, but. Right, we were a country of slavery, and so black people and women didn't have the vote. Yeah. So even that, right? That there is a great. Uh, do y'all know the Scene
0: on Radio podcast? No, they've done some great series about. They did one about um, seeing white, which is unpacking white supremacy, mm-hmm. and then another one called Men, which is about patriarchy, and then they have one just rec- the most recent one, which is about. I can't remember what it's called but it's like going back to the the founding of the United States as the settler colony as as we are now and like and asking this question about is yeah. it democracy it's fascinating i haven't finished listening to it but it's really really fascinating i would highly recommend it
1: yeah so so what role do parents have in kind of teaching this history and this nuance and this questioning and this weighing, what role do parents have with their children? And like, how much do we leave to teachers, you know, like where, What? what is your, what are your thoughts on that as like a parent and a former history teacher?
2: Yeah, well, I was, so I was recently trying to do some research on how do I even talk to my sons about race, right? The, my youngest is three, my oldest is five is it too early to talk about race with them, right? What I learned is, you know, the interesting part is children are just natural born categorizers, we are too, as adults, right? This is the whole basis of like schema theory and, and Piaget's theories on learning. But just in general, we try and associate things and we try and compartmentalize them into our schema, because it makes it easier for us to, you know, sort of recall that information later. And when I was doing this research, I learned that whatever experiences we have as a young child, that is that's our earliest form of schema, right? The one example that I always hear is, once a child learns what a dog is, right, a dog has four legs, it has a tail, if they go to the zoo, and they see a tiger, then they might think immediately, oh, that's a dog. And then as a parent, once you say no, that's a tiger. And here's why here's why it's different. That schema that they developed in the beginning sort of expands, right? And that's an oversimplified way of saying that's what, that's what we do with anything that we learn as kids, right? So, you know, my sons, while they're half Hispanic, they present as white, my husband is white, and they're going to grow up with every privilege of a, a white man, because that's how they present, right? And so I was thinking a lot about this. And, you know, in the wake of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, I kept thinking, what is, you know, how do I even talk to this about my sons? How do, How do I you know, sort of hide my emotions about what's happening right now and and not have them ask questions about mommy, why are you sad, right? So I was, anyway, that's a long way of saying it. I was doing a lot of research to figure out how do I even talk to a three year old about race. And that's where I learned about this schema theory and how we categorize things. And how if you as a child, go to school, and you have a white teacher, and all of your friends are white, and all of your teammates on your t-ball team are white, then you start to categorize you know, white people belong in these buckets. And then if your mailman is black, or if you go to Target and the cashier is black, then you start to categorize different people into, oh, those people belong in these roles where they are serving a purpose for me. Right. And so, Lisa, you asked, like, well, you know, what's our role as parents? I think we are the ones who give them their first experiences. And, and we, if our kids don't have experiences outside of sort of what is seen as the dominant culture, the dominant gender, the dominant race, whatever it is, then their schema is going to be very biased, right? And so like, as I just see my role, you know, I, anytime I have a routine with my, with my sons, I I think about how can I use this as an opportunity to build on their schema to get them out of these sort of biased categories that we tend to do when we're little kids even down to the books that I read them at night. Right. So I was looking at all of our books that we were reading and I was like, Oh wow. These books are all about like police officers and firefighters and, and they all look like, you know, sort of one type of race or one type of gender. And I wanted to make sure that my sons weren't developing a schema where they're like, people like this belong here and people like this belong here. And so I see that as my role right now as a mom of young kids is this is their first, this is going to be their, the base of how they sort of sort every other fact of knowledge that they learn in their life. And so how do I give them the best and the most diverse foundation possible right now? And then I think it's also it's also interesting, some of the lessons that we think about as teachers around trying to ask better questions of our students, some of those strategies work really well with kids too. And so I I went from asking my you know, my five-year-old, did you have a good day at kindergarten, which is a very closed question. It's just a yes or no answer to tell me one thing that made you really happy today about school. Tell me one way that you helped someone out at school. So asking different questions, I think is another strategy that parents can use. And it's probably, um, you know, a responsibility of parents to sort of give them permission to talk about different things that happen and sort of generally give them some example, some sort of give them opportunities to just have conversations about their day, which sets the groundwork later on when they start learning about, you know, society, some of the challenges that we're facing as a country, it gives them permission to have open dialogue and open conversations with their parents later. So right now I'm just trying to give them a volume of opportunities to do that in the hope that it'll pay off when they're, when they're older.
0: That's fascinating. I never thought about that, about the uh, asking questions in different ways as ways to like build up their abilities to enter into dialogue or almost think like do you think it also contributes to like thinking critically about like critical thinking skills or
2: yeah absolutely and i I wouldn't have even phrased it that way, Lindsay, but I'm really glad that you did because. Yeah. Like if I, if I ask my son, you know, how was your day? Good or bad? Like he has two answers and and he probably automatically just goes with his first answer. But if I ask him, tell me one way that this thing happened or one way that you were kind to someone, he actually has to stop and think about that. He can't just spit out an answer, you know?
0: It goes back to what you were saying earlier about how in Politics or no, in history, there's politics too. There's not just two sides. There's many, many, many sides. And like, yeah, sometimes the question like, yeah, like you just said, how was your day? Good or bad? Like there's only two two things it can be. Mm -hmm. Whereas instead of asking these open questions to really get at all of the different variations and nuances of your day. And it's interesting to think about it like that. Do you talk to your kids about the election now and like what's
2: going on? I do. And I... (laughs) It's been very challenging for me to I'm trying to think about my role as a history teacher, my favorite teacher, or I, I shouldn't say my favorite teacher, I've been very fortunate to have a lot of really wonderful history teachers. But I would say my earliest example of that was my high school EP government teacher, Mr. Allen, we would as you know, high school students, we would constantly try and guess what his political affiliation was, and he would just never ever tell us. And it was almost frustrating, because we're like, you're teaching us about elections and politics and government, like, we really want to know sort of your opinion as the authority. And it it took me becoming a history teacher to understand what a gift that was that he gave to us, right? Because we were really impressionable high school students. And if he had said, you know, I identify as a Republican, that might have skewed the way I approached my education. If he had said I identify as a Democrat or an Independent, that would have skewed it. And so I thought a lot about you know, doing that as a mom as well, right? i <laughs> I have a very strong political identity right now as a you know thirty something year old parent, but i I don't want to impose that on my three or five year olds. What I do want to do is I want to build some foundational values in them, and that's something that my husband and I obviously share. And so if I think about you know framing it from a character sense or from a value sense, I can talk to them a little bit more about the two candidates who are you know, running for president. And I think the other thing is I there probably was a world where I said I would have just totally avoided it if I could. But we happen to be in an area where there's lots and lots of political signs, they're everywhere. And they tend to skew one way over another. And so I've had visceral reactions to seeing some of these signs. And my kids pick up on that, you know, my five year olds like, mommy, why did you like, say that word that I'm not supposed to say? Or why did you start crying when you saw that sign? Right? And so I've had to really check myself, like, how do I even have this conversation with my son about, you know, just because we see the sign in someone's yard, does not make them a bad person? But let me tell you about the people on these signs, right? So I've tried to frame it as like, these are the men who are running for president, women can run for president too, right? Like, it's not just men, I want to make sure I'm not accidentally making their schema, you know, just men can do this one thing. But I've tried to ask them, you know, what were, what are some things you would think would make the best leader? And my kids have the most ridiculous answers, right? Someone who gives us candy all the time, but also like, you know, someone who's kind or someone who is nice to their friends. And so if I can have a conversation with them from a character perspective, then I feel like I can say, okay, let me share a little bit about what mommy thinks, what daddy thinks, what this person thinks about these different people. Right. And so I've tried to have conversations like that and I've tried very hard to not bring my own perception into it because what I want my sons to grow up with is a, you know, a North star, which is like they have the strongest character possible and they use that to make their decisions. Not because something fits into a certain identity that they know of.
1: That is really, that shows a lot of trust. And faith in your kids. Really inspiring. I think sometimes I'm so like fearful that I just like go into lecture mode, Mm. you know, Mm -hmm. and go into like, this is what we believe and this is what I, expect, you know, but of course that doesn't work like, right? People with one view end up raising children with totally different views, no matter how hard they try to shove it down their throat. Yeah. So you're giving me some really good food for thought.
0: Yeah, I think this emphasis on like being clear about these are, well, these are my values. These are, you know, building values and being clear on values, being clear on character traits is different than just like telling them who to vote for, right? Or saying like, we are a Democrat, so we vote Democrat. Yeah, I really like that.
2: Yeah.
1: Because, of course, that serves them past like Democrat, Republican, who knows what the parties will be or how they'll change.
2: Yeah. And I i mean, I also think I have a lot of friends who, you know, I grew up in Louisiana, I currently live in Western Pennsylvania, I spent over a decade in DC. So I have friends who run the entire political spectrum, right? I can't tell you how many conversations I've had where someone's like, well, I don't really love this person, but I only have two choices. And and we always sort of like, wouldn't it be nice if, if we really could have beyond a two party system, And I think we have to get to a place where we talk about, you know, values as the way we vote as opposed to identity, right? There's a, you know, a lot of the work that I do in consulting is helping superintendents and districts thinking about what their mission is whenever they're writing a new strategic plan. And there's a really good philosophy in responsive organizations that talks about the even overstatement. And what I love about this is organizations can list all of their values, right? We value transparency, we value opportunity, we value diversity, whatever it is. But at a certain point, you have to make decisions. And sometimes that decision means you're going to have your values conflict. And an even overstatement is a way to sort of rank your values. And so you could say, you know, we value transparency, but we value diversity even more. So in a situation where those two things are pitted against each other, whether or not that would be a common occurrence, we like we already know what our answer is going to be. And so I think the same could be said for, you know, families, you have your values as a family group. So the families that I know that are part of I'm a part of a Bible study, right? And so like thinking about Christian values and thinking about values of a certain party over another, right? You could say we value, you know, freedom to choose, we value life, we value diversity, all of these things like so, so giving your kids the opportunity to not only know what their values are, but to also know, you know, when your back's against the wall, when you're forced to choose what's your even over, like, what's the thing that you value more than anything, And I think if we had more conversations like that, we could get to a place where we don't have a two party system, or we don't have these like that down vote ballot voting instances, right, where we could never get out of this, like really polarized environment. And so anyway, I haven't really, (laughs) I haven't really perfected that transition of using even over with my superintendents with my, you know, three and five year olds, but it has just really stuck with me with, you know, I'm trying to instill all these values in that. And uh, I want them to know, you know, this is what I value even over everything else. And that's going to be sort of the driving force of my character.
0: I love that, the even over statement.
2: I know one of the things that I struggle with is that,
0: so my oldest who's seven, she knows about Donald Trump, obviously. And we've talked about, we talk about current events. And I struggle because I try and I've always tried to follow this idea Dia and uh, instilling them that that it's not the people are bad, it's the behaviors are bad. And like, but I find it really difficult to do that when it c- comes to some of our politicians, you know?
1: Yeah. But I think so, something I was gonna say that you also made me think about, Gabby, really early on in this conversation, you talked about how you were allowed to take issue with some of what you were learning. You were allowed to ask questions. And it's interesting. I can see that in the way that you are, like the position you're kind of taking about how you teach and engage with your children, right? Because like the framing kind of opens up the opportunity for kids to think for themselves mm-hmm. versus, yeah. so it's it's really neat approach.
2: You know, I was thinking of, you know, in preparation for this podcast, I was thinking about your audience and and there's going to be a lot of like moms out there who are probably, if they're like me, right? We don't have a lot of time to sort of like sift through different things We're we're trying to balance so many things. And so the podcasts I enjoy the most are the ones where someone's like, and this is the thing you do. This is the strategy. Here's the tip, right? And I was thinking about this, you know, I mentioned earlier, I was trying to do some research on how to talk about race with my, with my kids. And there's a woman named Jasmine Bradshaw, who also has a podcast around sort of this issue. She was talking about how some parents reach out to her and they're like, well, my kids are colorblind, you know, they don't see color, because we'll talk about a character in a, in a book, or we'll talk about a character on a movie, and they'll describe the character using all sorts of adjectives, or just all sorts of descriptors, but never once say, and that character was black, or brown, or white, or whatever it was. And what she was challenging sort of her listeners to think about is well, they probably just don't have the language for it yet, right? And so once kids get language, they start to talk about it. So if you're that parent who's like, I'm not going to talk about race, then they just don't have the language to talk about any of that, right? And then the same goes for, you know, I'm the parent who's not going to talk about politics, or I'm not going to talk about feminism, or I'm not going to talk about any of these other sort of harder social issues, then there's a good chance our, our kids are growing up without permission to talk about them without the language to talk about them. And so, you know, there's, This one, uh, this one tip that my mother gave to me, she, she was a kindergarten teacher for many, many years, she retired as a kindergarten teacher. And she would always say, you know, there's no bad or good kids, there's just bad and good choices. Right. And that has always stuck with me, because my three year old, especially whenever he gets mad about something, he's told he can't have another piece of candy, he's told he can't skip nap, whatever it is. He's like, Mommy, you're so bad, Right. And it's always that word. <laughs> I'm like, well, I'm not bad, sweetheart. You can be angry at mommy. You can say you're frustrated. And I'm literally just trying to give him other words to use and to build his vocabulary. And it takes like 20 times. But maybe the next time he's like, this morning he actually told me, "Mommy, you're so frustrating," right? And I'm like, okay, well, we've graduated from using bad. But um, <laughs> but I think it's that idea of like just providing providing permission to talk about things and providing more language to talk about it as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it just makes me think I need to do a bit of a better job journaling and really getting some of that language for myself. Cause I find that oftentimes I'm trying to come up with that language in the moment.
0: But don't you think it's also okay to just be like, I don't know how how to talk about this right now. Like saying that to your kids too. And, like, and
1: you know, like or Yeah. Oh, I think it is. I think it is. Yeah. For sure. But I just Maybe it's the teacher in me. Like I tend to have a teaching point and want to say it over and over again. Yeah. And I feel like what, at least what Gabby's reflections are stirring up in me is a need to have like maybe more nuanced language. And what, it, what are the words? What, it just makes me ask myself, what is my value? What is my top value? Mm-hmm. What is my even over value? And then I, that I want to have it handy. You know, it makes me think of Glennon Doyle Melton.
2: Do you know Glennon Doyle Melton, Gabby? I love Melton. her. Oh yeah. my gosh. She was, in the, she was in the running for my female crush of the week. Yeah. And I was like, this whole totally. story so big though.
1: I know. Well, and I I, I haven't, um, I can't believe she hasn't been my feminist crush yet. You know, I think she has a mantra, right? And I, I do sometimes wish I could have a mantra and I've never found one. For a while I stole Kips, which was work hard, be nice. Be nice. Yeah. But that didn't incorporate everything. So then it was work hard, be nice, be brave. Because what I really wanted them to do was stand up for what was right when they left me. So anyway, I don't know. Just it makes me want to have better language.
0: I like that idea coming up with uh, like if uh, as like a reflection question, like if 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 you were to have a family value or family mantra that reflects your values, what would it be? Do you have Gabby? Do you have one something like that in your family?
2: Oh, gosh, I have a personal mantra. And this is actually so bad, because I'm like, that'd be such a great idea. I have a personal one. I don't know that we've talked about it as a family. But I, I do know. So my husband and I are polar opposites in a lot of ways, right? I was raised in the city, he was raised more in sort of a suburban area. I, I don't know that I ever saw my father pick up a hammer, like ever. <laughs> and my husband could probably build our entire house if he wanted to. So there, there's a lot of like differences there, but we also both were history teachers. We actually taught at the same school, right? And so we we did have this conversation one time about, you know, what are the things that we as individuals have in common? Uh, because it could be easy to say, my husband's also, I'm working on him a little bit, but he's also, he's also not into politics like I am. Like he's like, oh, I don't want to watch this political commercial. I'm gonna, I'm gonna skip the commercials while we're watching a show together, right? And I I like live for that stuff. But, uh, you know, at our core, we both like deeply care about family. And we both deeply care that, you know, our boys at their core are nice, and they speak up for others, right? Like, and so while we don't have a mantra, I feel like we've had the conversation around, what kind of parents do we want to be? What kind of kids do we want to raise? But, you know, on a personal standpoint, I've, I've had to create a mantra for work. It's just sort of a tradition that we have when we have these mentoring conversations, that's a part of my organization. And mine, I think you'll both appreciate because we have kids in sort of that younger group. But mine has been, you know, just zoom out. Because I I think I went through a moment in the middle of the pandemic where, you know, my kids were at home, my husband and I both still had our jobs. And we were trying to sort of compartmentalize our time, right? The morning I had the boys, my husband worked the afternoon, he had the boys, I worked together, we were together for dinner. And then we both sort of went our separate ways after bedtime to continue working. (laughs) And so I just hit this wall where I was like, I'm not seeing my husband, we have no free time, you know, I think we're much shorter tempered with our kids, because we're so stressed and i just kept thinking so many moms say oh you're going to miss this time flies by so fast blah blah, blah. and i just had, it was the 50th time that my 3 year old wanted me to hold him or do something for him and i was like i just need to send this email so anyway my long story short my mantra for this year has been to zoom out and just sort of take some perspective right and i think that's been helpful in work and i don't know that i've i've actually done as much to apply it to my home life but to your point earlier, Lisa, about having a mantra, I think sometimes like the type of people we are, we want them to be like super perfect. And I had a mentor who just said, you just change your mantra. Like you, if you all grow it, just change it. So like just do a mantra I for like the week.
0: That. You yeah, know, just do a mantra for the
2: week and see what happens. So.
0: Yeah. I like that. And I like the mantra, zoom
1: out. Very appropriate. Well, I really appreciate this, Gabby, because I feel like you took a podcast that I thought was going to be about politics and made it a podcast about like values it's a really interesting way of approaching it uh and gave me so much food for thought
2: i i love that you say that lisa because i think people hear politics and i've been told by friends like oh I, i hate politics and i i actually think there's such a negative connotation with them i truly do see politics as being about values you know and um, so I, I love that you even pulled that out because I would have been like, oh, isn't that how everybody thinks of it? But the reality is, no, a lot of people don't. Right. And I think that's why there's such a turnoff when it comes to politics and just a negative association with what we're going through right now. But um
1: that's really good. That's really yeah. good. We have our closing question, but is there anything else, Lindsay, you want to ask Gabby or
2: anything you want to so or maybe. anything
1: else you want to add or say, Gabby?
2: Like there's no like perfect way to weave it in, but I'm in a book club and I was I was reading this book by Isabel Wilkerson called Cast. Have you guys heard of this book? Yeah,
0: it's on my list. I haven't
2: read it yet. It's so good. So anyway, so it talks about how there's like three forms of caste that we've experienced in world history, right? And some of them are are more well known than others, right? There's the Indian caste system that everybody thinks about when you hear that word. There's Nazi Germany of the late 1930s, when you start to have a hierarchy and an othering of groups. And Isabel Wilkerson writes that the third is actually the United States of America. And, you know, I think we talk about racism and we talk about the patriarchy, but I've never actually said this is actually a caste system because there is a hierarchy in how we organize people and how we say you are in this group and you're in that group. But what she says almost, almost right away is she says, America is this like old house. And when you are an, a homeowner and you have an old house, there's all these noises, right? And there's like idiosyncrasies of the house that over time you just learn to live with, right? So you learn to, and I remember this because the first house my husband and I bought in Virginia, we had these wooden floors and the stairs were like sort of squeaky, Right. And so we got to a point where we just knew the floorboard to step over, especially when we had a newborn and we were trying not to wake them up at nap time, right? And so we knew like, okay, you step over this or you don't like, you don't turn on this fan because it's super noisy, right? And so you just get used to these idiosyncrasies. But what Isabel Wilkerson says is we get so used to it that it fades into this background noise. And actually the problem gets much worse. There's a reason why that floorboard is squeaky. There's a reason why there's a leak in that area of the house. And that's the America that we're in right now, right? If, if we're privileged enough to be able to ignore it, we're that homeowner that is just ignoring the idiosyncrasies we've learned to live with those, those things. And if, we are, if we're in a different group, a marginalized group, then we face them every single day. And it's really hard to be the spokesperson for that thing that needs to be fixed, but anyway, this this whole analogy about thinking about the country as a house and thinking about what's faded into the background, as much as I feel like I'm trying to stay ahead of all of the social issues, I know there's even things that I'm probably are, are totally above you know my awareness right now because they've just faded into sort of my understanding of our country right now. So I think I, I love that book. I highly recommend it for a lot of reasons. But I think in general, like our kids don't actually have they're not the old homeowner, right? They recognize everything. They pick up on so much more than we have because they, it hasn't been like part of this background noise. And so I think just like giving them permission to ask questions and not sort of turn away from that leaky roof. I I think that's just, that has really been sticking with me lately. That is a great analogy. Thank
1: you. Yeah. Yeah yeah it just really makes me think how often do I let my kids like bring things to my attention how where's the space for that so that those conversations can happen? You know how
0: quickly we teach them to just just ignore the squeaky floorboard
1: mm-hmm. because we're so used to doing it, but I guess this is something that I would just offer. I think one thing I've been grappling with is like in order to kind of address some, uh, to have the difficult conversations and to be kind of speaking up and questioning. It takes a certain kind of posture. And I feel like we can foster that posture when it comes to like the relevant hard conversations, but there's like a million ways to foster that even when it comes to a silly conversation about what you're going to have for breakfast. I, I just think that there are There are ways we've been talking a lot about questioning and the critical voice and speaking up about a problem you see and not letting it lie. And I think all of those are habits that we can address when they're like very relevant in our face when it comes to race, when it comes to seeing people be excluded for whatever reason. But it's also like how they engage with us on the things that we don't always want to engage with them about. So I don't think my bedtime should be at eight o'clock, you know. And it's like those, sometimes those conversations, allowing your kid to speak up, to protest, to question on those things is very, very difficult when you're a parent. And I think brings with it a little bit of embarrassment sometimes. Mm -hmm. Like I know sometimes I am embarrassed when my kids aren't obedient in front of others. Mm -hmm. And then I have to kind of situate in that. And like, I don't want, I don't want them to be obedient adults. Yeah. And oh, and it true. actually it really makes me think of uh, another podcast, Parenting is Political. Mm. Because in that podcast, they really draw out that like if we're working against oppression, how are those systems of oppression even replicated within our own like family dynamics? That like yeah. how how big and mm-hmm. how like how much it permeates like everything. It just it makes me think like even my son, he always starts by saying Um, Mom, can I ask a question? And I'm like, I don't really want him to ask permission to ask a question. How'd that get set up? Oh, gosh, I never even thought about that. You know what I mean? So it is about being a critical thinker. It is a a, and and literally like what it means to be critical. That criticism is good.
2: Mm -hmm, mm
1: -hmm. And you embrace that in so many ways in every family
2: interaction. I love that, Lisa. Well. I don't attempt to know an answer to your question, (laughs) but uh, my mother-in-law actually used to tell me this. She's like, I, you know, I had a friend who would say when she, when she knew that she was going to tell her son to do something and he was not going to like it, whether it's like, we're going to leave the playground or we need to get dressed now, or, or we need to get our, our shoes on, whatever it was, she would always give him the semblance of choice. And, you know, I think sometimes this is an educator trick too, right? Like we're giving some choice, but we're setting the boundaries to operate within, right? And so, you know, I do this all the time with my kids now where I say, do you want to go to bed now or in five minutes? And both of those answers or or responses are within what I would approve of as a parent, right? And So I could do it for all sorts of things, right? Do you want to read this book or that book? But no matter what, this is like bedtime reading. Or do you want to, my kids, I have no idea how, but they have like a million toothbrushes. And I'm like, do you want to brush your teeth with the Spider-Man? toothbrush or Buzz Lightyear or whatever it is. But no matter what, like this, you have to brush your teeth. And so I don't attempt to think that that's an answer to your question. But I also think it's like, are there are there some choices that we're making for our kids that they could actually make for themselves? And are those choices within what would be acceptable to us as parents? And then you mentioned this earlier, Lisa, what is like age appropriate for them? You know?
1: Yeah. Cool. All right, Lindsay, you want to take us into our closing?
0: yeah, so in closing, Gabby, we like to ask each other how are we going to take care of ourselves? because we know as moms, as women, it's very easy to forget that we have to take care of ourselves. So I'll start by asking you, how are you going to take care of Gabby this week?
2: <laughs> Out of all the questions, I feel like this is the hardest, and you can tell that means I'm not very good at self-care. <laughs> but <laughs> I think in my bio, I told you guys i you know I enjoy running, and I do. But ever since having kids, I'm so bad at it. But more importantly, I've been thinking about what do I enjoy about running? Or what did I enjoy about it? I think it was just being outside and getting fresh air. And like sort of being obviously away from a screen, but sort of also being unplugged and untethered, right. And so this week, I'm going to make it a point to go for a run. And I'm not going to care about how fast I'm going or if I have to walk. But the point is like, I'm going to get outside and and that is just going to be really refreshing and, and my form of self-care.
1: Awesome. And Lisa, how are you going to take care of Lisa this week? Okay, mine is so silly. My <laughs> The thing I'm doing, I'm just drinking a lot of pumpkin beer. You know, it's not feminist or motherly or anything, but I had a really close group of girlfriends who first introduced me to pumpkin beer. For me, October is pumpkin beer month. I like to put a little cinnamon sugar rim on it. So yeah, so I not only love it, like I find it delicious, but it reminds me of all the great times we've had together. I'm not a huge drinker, so I have to like plan to have relaxing beer at the end of the day. So that's all. I'm just, I'm going to have some pumpkin beer. What about you? How are you going to take care of my friend Lindsay this week? I'm going to limit my Twitter
0: time. I have
1: a, (laughs) Lisa
0: knows this, I have an ongoing battle with Twitter where I get addicted. And it can be, I, I there's some things I love about Twitter. I've met some amazing people on Twitter and built some communities, but it can also be incredibly toxic. So I'm not going to like completely go cold turkey, but I'm going to limit my my time on Twitter.
1: Well, thank you so much, Gabby. This was really fantastic food for thought and really making me reflect on some of my parenting for sure.
0: Yeah, I loved hearing your story. I loved hearing your perspective on on this. It's yeah, great. Thank you so much for sharing that all with us and our yeah. listeners. Yeah. Thank you Brooke, for
1: having
2: me. This was fun.
1: Yeah. Now everyone just needs to think about their values and vote, donate, phone bank, text. All the things. All the things. Thanks. Or <laughs> have some difficult conversations <laughs> with some relatives. Uh-huh. <laughs> awesome. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Sorry. Thanks ladies. Thanks so much for listening.
0: We'd love to hear what you think about this topic. Our website is momingwallfeminist.com and you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at mommingwallfeminist.
1: Let's have each other's backs this week and take care of yourself. <laughs>